0: you <music> Hello all, and a warm welcome on a cold day to the latest offering from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm sure that you know the spiel by now, but if you're a new listener and you're just tuning in for the first time, it's North Wales's premier one-person, spare-room-based true crime podcast seeking out the obscure and often forgotten cases from the dark corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator of the show and your host for today, where it's fabulous having you guys join me as it always is. I thank you very, very much for doing so, and I hope that as you're listening, that everybody's good and well. Now as we always start these episodes, thanks so much to everyone who's gotten in touch with regards to last week's episode, The Feathers and the Golden Flute. It's definitely one of the highlights to have ever featured on the show. I absolutely loved hosting it because I found the whole account fascinating. And credit once again to Julia Crane for her work. It's proper excellent research there. If any of you guys fancy doing the same, researching and writing up a case for a listener episode as Julia has, then by all means please do get in touch. It could be a local one to you or one that's close to your heart or perhaps even one that's just always piqued your interest or happily host your work up with full credit given to yourselves. There's none of this crime junkie bollocks here on The Enthusiast and I shall even send you a little something through the post for your troubles. Last week's was the second episode this series that Julia's written for the show and I'm pleased to say that she's agreed to pen another episode for the show at a later date with a case that she's chosen that's exactly the type of case that I'd seek out for the show so I'm very very excited about that. I'm also pleased to say that the November bonus Patreon episode is almost finished now and it'll be winging its way out soon. With thanks going out to the show's latest supporters Amory Swan, Marie Harris, Kate Much and Kerry Williams. It's so very kind of you guys and much appreciated all. I hope that you've had chance to catch up with the 22 bonus episodes that there is to date and as I say number 23 is coming shortly. If you want to join these folks in supporting the show to hear these episodes yourselves, then like Daredevil Watching Porn, it's not hard at all. The links are in the episode show notes, or you can just seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. Now it's the full title by the way, so don't forget to add the podcast suffix to that if you go searching for it on there, but it's got the same logo and everything like that. Once there, it's cheaper than a pound shop discount sale each month and you can get access to these episodes, plus a host of other stuff, should you opt to of course. I know I say this each week, but I would like to reiterate, any support of the show means the world. It's not just monetary, it can be an honest show review or feedback about the episodes, whatever. But without you guys, the show doesn't happen. Simple as. So, every one of you is ace this week on the show also brings the first of what i've decided going forward will be a regular series feature each series from now there'll be at least one episode entitled monsters of and a different region that will be selected each time now the region i've opted for this series is merseyside and we'll get onto to that shortly just after a short word from this week's show sponsors who are once again HelloFresh. fresh Imagine having delivered to your door each week not only a selection of recipes of your own choosing from all cultures and that cater for everybody but the perfect portions of ingredients for these and a logical step-by-step guide to making them. That's what you get with HelloFresh, the UK's leading recipe box service. You can choose from a total of 19 wide-ranging multicultural recipes each week that really do cater for all, if you're in a rush, if you've got fussy kids, or even if you struggle to imagine anything more adventurous than beans on toast. You can despair-free shake up your tried-and-tested menus and ensure that you get an ace meal that you wouldn't necessarily have considered before, one that the whole family can sit down to enjoy. The recipes offered cover worldwide cuisine and they even cater for those who are dieting hard with Christmas around the corner. It's all delivered right to your door, so you're not out rushed buying exotic spices or vegetables that you don't have in. HelloFresh have sorted all of that. And because they're perfectly portioned, depending, of course, upon the size of the box you've ordered, there isn't any waste, and the instructions are so simple, if they were a person, they'd be called Simon. I enjoyed dishes ranging from India to the UK in the box that I got, and whilst I enjoy cooking, I'm certainly not a master chef at all. But the recipes were easy and straightforward to follow, I have to say, and I especially was impressed that you can chop and change aspects of your box. For example, you may want to increase or decrease the size of it, or have it delivered to a different address, no worries. And if you do find that HelloFresh isn't for you, then because a subscription is flexible, you're not tied into a minimum term with them. And once again this week also, HelloFresh as show sponsors are offering you guys the saving of a total of £60 off four of these boxes just by simply heading over to their site www.hellofresh.co.uk Once you're there and you're registered, simply choose the box and the recipes that you want from the list, choose your suited delivery slot, and when you get to the checkout, just enter the unique code TRUECRIME to get the offer of £60 off the cost of four HelloFresh boxes. And that guys is all she wrote. Thanks to HelloFresh, you'll have a brand new menu and the ingredients for it stress-free delivered to your kitchen table. So then, to the episode this week, Monsters of Merseyside. Now, there isn't much explanation needed beyond the title, really, because I'm sure that as the episode progresses, you'll see exactly why it's called that. It originally was intended to feature two accounts, but I've decided to split the one episode into two to cover each case more thoroughly. The episode this week contains details and descriptions of crimes involving children that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, so please use your discretion as always whilst listening, folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts as this week we go meet the first of the monsters of Merseyside. The metropolitan county of Merseyside in England's northwest is located across the de-estuary from my home area of North Wales and also has border links with the surrounding counties of Lancashire, Cheshire and Greater Manchester, all places that we visited on the show before. Five metropolitan boroughs make up the county. You've got St Helens, Sefton, Knowsley, the Wirral, and of course, the City of Liverpool. Now, if you're a music fan and you don't live under a rock, then you'll know just how famous Merseyside is for some of the artists to have come out of it. I'm talking people like Silla Black, Echo and the Bunnymen, and of course, not forgetting, the Coral. Love the Coral. There was another band hailing from there many years ago, but they rarely get mentioned around the area. Especially in Liverpool, you'd be like, who are they? Other good stats that I found about Merseyside while I was researching the episode are that musicians from Liverpool have produced, between them, 56 number one singles, which is more than any other city in the world. The bells in Liverpool Cathedral are the heaviest in the world, 13 bells, weighing a collective 17 tonnes. Penny Lane is now painted on buildings in the location rather than on actual street signs because Beatles fans used to nick them with such regularity. But my absolute favourite stat that I found this week is that for 41 years, from 1965 to 2006, the seaside town of Southport in the county was where chewits were manufactured until production was relocated to Slovakia. Now, who doesn't still love a chew-it now, eh? I could eat them till they come out of my ears. And I still remember the adverts when I was a kid in the 1980s with the muncher, the Godzilla-type thing, eating all of the world-famous landmarks and only stopping when he got to a giant pack of chew and afterwards turning his nose up at anything but them. Good times indeed. Look it up on YouTube. Fantastic. But the area of Merseyside that's the focus of this episode is the Wirral specifically one of the oldest villages on the Wirral Peninsula the village of Eastham near to the River Mersey and back in the mid-1990s the M53 motorway linking the Wallasey Tunnel to the A55 near Chester and onto North Wales directly skirts a part of Eastham known as Eastham Rake now it's a green belt area that the Wirral Circular Trail runs through and is comprised of a picturesque series of commons and walking trails, interspersed with a series of ponds and small lakes that are very popular with anglers throughout the year around. Two such anglers who used to enjoy fishing there were Eastern residents, 13 year old Paul Barker, and his lifelong best friend, 12 year old Robbie G. The two boys lived relatively near to each other in the village and had been inseparable since they'd first met at Eastham's Haygarth Primary School in the mid-1980s. They'd gone through primary and had moved up to be in the same class in South Wirral High School where they were both described as kind, helpful and popular pupils. Both boys were sporting and loved the outdoors with Robbie especially showing great promise as a footballer. In fact, he was soccer mad. The only child of Catherine Lenny G., Robbie attended every home game of his beloved Liverpool FC with his father. He was forever to be seen in a Liverpool strip. Posters of his cop heroes Ian Rush, Robbie Fowler and John Aldridge adorned his bedroom walls. And Robbie even looked destined to follow in his idol's footsteps. He'd formerly played for local Parkdale Under-10s, where he was recognised unanimously as the team's best player. Him being awarded a record five trophies in his final season, playing for them being a testament to this, and he'd gone on to enjoy similar success playing for local teams, Parkdale and Haygarth. When not kicking a ball around, he was known to be a practical joker with a love of situation comedy, including Mr Bean, Bottom and Men Behaving Badly which are all still good today, really, especially Bottom. I was actually watching it the other night as it happens, and I still love it as much as when I first saw it many years ago now. Paul, meanwhile, was more of a fisherman than a footballer. He developed his love of fishing from his grandfather, William Barker, and following his parents, Richard and Pat, getting him in a membership to local Upton Angling Club, which he described to everyone as his best present ever. Every chance he could, he'd be off at one of the fisheries in the Eastern area. He even had a beloved hat sporting the logo, the world's best fisherman. It was a passion that Robbie didn't need much persuasion to share in, and subsequently, both boys were often to be found around the series of ponds near Eastham Rake railway station, including one particularly popular spot known locally as the Carpies. It was to the Carpies that Paul and Robbie headed on the hot afternoon of Saturday July the 29th 1995 for an afternoon's fishing. Robbie had set off on his mountain bike, complete with fishing tackle, at about 12.45 from his home in Darleydale Drive, making the journey around to call for Paul, who lived a short distance away in Rayburn Avenue. And together, the two friends set off on the short journey to the Carpies, which was less than a mile from where the both of them lived. Despite it being a sweltering day, both boys had promised to be back home at about 5.30pm that Saturday tea time as they were fans of the popular TV show Gladiators, a show that both enjoyed watching and that was airing at the time. So true to their word the two friends were, that it began to extremely worry both boys' parents when they hadn't returned home by 6pm that evening telephone calls between the parents revealed that neither boy was at the other's house and fearing there may have been an accident Lenny G and Richard Barker set off to search around the local area looking for them they headed down to the carpies and although there were some anglers still there fishing the boys were amongst them after checking a few of their other known haunts with no success by 9 p.m that evening both families were concerned enough to report Paul and Robbie as missing to police Now kids do come in late, don't they? I'm sure that you guys were out on occasion long after you were supposed to be in. I know that I was indeed. But Paul and Robbie were conscientious lads and neither would have been three and a half hours late home. It was unheard of either being out after 8.30pm of an evening. So police took this very seriously indeed. It was also just two years after the horrific killing of toddler James Bulger and arguably especially in that area of the country a missing child was now acted upon with a certain more impetus with that in mind description of both boys was issued force-wide and a search of the surrounding streets and neighboring villages got underway with a ground search to begin at first light the following sunday morning A search did indeed begin in the area of the Eastern Rake Ponds eight hours later at about 5am and a team of search officers and police dog handlers began a sweeping motion from the area of the carpies, heading outwards towards a succession of smaller ponds that lay a short distance away across a patch of land in Eastern Rake known as Brooklands Common. It was in an area near one of these stretches of water known as Brooklands Pond that a discovery was made two mountain bikes matching the description of both boys cycles they were laid abandoned in between two established fishing pegs that both contained set up fishing tackle and stools it appeared for all the world that the boys had cycled there set up their fishing spots and had then simply vanished where exactly were they half of that question was answered about two minutes later A police dog handler, PC Billy Hill, discovered the body of Robbie G lying in a wooded copse only about 50 yards away from the spot where the two friends had been angling the previous day. Although police officers immediately checked, there were no signs of life present. Lying on his back, Robbie had his baseball cap placed over his face, his tracksuit bottoms lay around his ankles and his Liverpool t-shirt had been pulled up to expose his bare chest, his torso covered in blood from the very apparent multiple vicious stab wounds that he'd received. But of Paul, there was no sign. Not until 1pm that afternoon. The site where Robbie had been found was part of a seven-acre patch of largely overgrown scrubland, So this, combined with the sweltering July heat that year, made any search difficult. But it had nevertheless immediately gotten underway, with the specialist search teams and police dog handlers all combing the cordoned off area in a precision fingertip search pattern. The afternoon was only an hour old when another police dog handler, PC Jim Fielding, was directed by his dog's excited scent to an overgrown ditch some 500 yards from where the body of Robbie G had been found it was there that they found what they'd sadly but realistically expected to find as that morning had progressed but hoped against hope that they would be proven wrong the body of paul barker like robbie paul also lay on his back his trousers and underwear pulled down to his ankles he too had his baseball cap covering his face and like robbie had several vicious looking stab wounds to his chest clearly visible, his t-shirt removed. But around Paul's neck, the ugly wheels and bruising of what looked like a very thin taut garrote also showed prominently. Home office pathologist Dr Alan Williams had been called to the scene and had the task of now pronouncing both boys dead before the bodies were photographed in situ and then taken to nearby Arrow Park Hospital where each was identified by Robbie's father Lenny G and Paul's uncle Richard Williams respectively and the family's nightmare began. Postmortems on both boys revealed that each had been likely killed early on the previous afternoon each stabbed in the chest with such ferocity that the wounds went deeper than the length of the blade which was thought to have been a four inch fishing type knife Paul ten times Robbie nine Robbie had also been manually strangled whilst Paul had been garroted, and had also received a fractured skull from several blows with a blunt instrument despite both boys being found with their clothing disturbed there was no evidence of either being sexually assaulted and nothing was found to have been taken from either boy now you just don't even want to imagine things like that do you any aspect of that at all what kind of creature does that to two young lads who were out fishing for no apparent reason An intense murder investigation, one of the largest in Merseyside police history and led by Detective Superintendent Jeff Harrison was immediately launched, the crime having shocked and saddened even the hardest of investigating officers. It prompted Detective Superintendent Harrison to later describe it as the most tragic case I have ever come across. There somehow always seems to be more anger and a sense of outrage concerning the murder of a child, doesn't there? I know murders are of course actioned the same from the off and any murder investigation shouldn't have any more or less impetus than another of course but with a child murder you must just so want such evil caught and taken off the streets that everyone involved must seem to be willing to go that extra mile to do it because it proper breaks the heart of the nation, doesn't it? so the investigation launched was intense and massive with 200 officers drafted in and all focusing upon the Eastham area. Roadblocks around the area were established and drivers stopped and questioned, a painstaking fingertip search of the Eastham rake area began which was no easy feat due to the scale of the area and how overgrown it was and a mass house-to-house inquiry and the Eastham and surrounding areas got underway. Meanwhile, in two separate houses in Darladale Drive and Rayburn Avenue, Robbie and Paul's families sat in absolute devastation, comforted as best as possible by their immediate family. Later that Sunday evening, house-to-house inquiries in Eastham had reached Sutherland Drive, where a 15-year-old angler named Paul Portbury, who lived there, was spoken to, having contacted police after hearing of the discovery of Paul and Robbie's bodies. He told detectives that he and another friend Derek Kerrish had been fishing at the Carpies the previous afternoon and had seen Paul and Robbie who both of the boys knew arrive at the pond at about 1pm. However, because the bank had been quite crowded Another angler who was fishing there at the time had advised the boys to head over to nearby Brooklands Pond to fish, which Paul thought was strange advice as it was supposedly common knowledge that Brooklands Pond was deemed unfishable due to the extensive weeds that inhabited it. Just as he mentioned this to detectives, this other angler, who lived across the road from Paul Portbury at number 106 Sutherland Drive, arrived over at Paul's house to see what was going on and to offer his assistance. His name was Stephen David Heaney. 36-year-old factory machine setter Heaney confirmed to police that he had indeed seen the boys and directed them to Brooklyn's pond the previous day, so detectives headed over to the semi-detached home that he shared with his parents, 75-year-old Bill and 72-year-old Marie, to speak to Heaney further and to get a statement to this effect. By being one of the last known people to have seen the boys alive, he was an important witness. However, what should have at that time been an informal, casual chat was soon to turn and detectives decided to take Heaney in to Bromborough Police Station to be spoken to after the account of his movements the previous day that he gave. A senior officer involved in the case, Detective Inspector George Denton, said later Call it intuition, but the interviewing officers had a strong feeling he wasn't telling the truth. However a check revealed that Heaney had no previous criminal record and had never come to police attention before and despite him remaining a person of interest no charges were brought against him and he was released later that Sunday evening. At a press conference held at Bromborough Police Station the following morning the ashen-faced uncle of Paul Barker, Raymond Williams and the grandfather of Robbie G, Aubrey Edge faced the packed room of assembled press flanked by senior murder squad detectives a shattered Raymond told the room both families are devastated nothing like this has ever happened to us I'd like to appeal for both families who has any knowledge into how they died to come forward we need to catch the person who's done this terrible thing before it happens again Robbie's grandfather added their lives must not be in vain It must not happen to anyone else. Detective Superintendent Harrison then told the assembled press of the boys' last known movements, saying, They had cycled to the Chester side of the M53 where there were four other boys already fishing with a 36 year old man. The boys asked the man where else they could go and he sent them back under the motorway to where they were found. Post mortems have confirmed they both died from stab wounds to the chest one boy could have been chased or enticed to where he was found murdered we just don't know the killer could have blood-stained clothing then as if any further emphasis on the horror of the crime was needed a visibly shaken detective superintendent harrison added these are brutal murders with no motive i've never known anything like this before the murder scene can only be described as dreadful there is a very dangerous person out there who we need to capture and I would advise all parents to make sure they know exactly where their children are at all times. That morning, at first light, the search had resumed at Eastern Rake, where the area, covering an area the size of three football pitches, filled with waist-high grass and foliage, brambles and thick undergrowth, had to be carefully scythed down, with officers all the while conscious and careful of possibly destroying any potential evidence. Officers on horseback patrolled the perimeter of the rake searching for any clues to try to establish the killer's possible point of egress whilst at the same time six police vans filled Brookhurst Road the residential area leading up to the murder scene to maintain the cordon that was put in place. The local community was left stunned and saddened with residents who lived near both of the boys who knew them well especially left in a state of shock. One neighbour of the G family who didn't wish to be named told the Liverpool Echo It has shattered us. I was coming back from Tlandidno and we drove past the scene in North Wales where the young girl was killed. We thought that was absolutely terrible but when we got back here and found out that little Robert and his friend had also been killed I just collapsed. The young girl that the neighbour is referring to, by the way, is tragic Sophie Hook, whose despicable murder I covered last year here on The Enthusiast, in the second series of the show, I believe, and that had occurred only hours after the murders of Paul and Robbie in the early hours of the 30th of July. Real weekend of horror that one was, eh? Yet in the cases of Paul and Robbie, there was to be a rapid breakthrough following a telephone call that police had received on the sunday evening and after rapid follow-up inquiries police were to speak to a person of interest once again on the monday evening stephen david heaney an eastern couple mary and dusty miller had contacted police on that sunday evening and had offered stephen heaney as a suspect the suspicions of him had stemmed from actions of a year or so previously when heaney had seemed to take what the couple believed was an unhealthy interest in their 12 year old son glenn yes really glenn miller heaney was working as a relief manager at an eastern pub called the stanley arms at the time where the millers were regulars and had taken an especial shine to glenn he was often offering to demonstrate to him climbing techniques on a climbing wall that was set up behind the pub, or to teach him karate, which he claimed he was an expert at, and would often offer Glenn to come upstairs when the pub was closed to do this, although Glenn never did so. Then he had on one occasion taken Glenn fishing with him without Mary or Dusty giving him permission to do so. He was known to have told another member of the bar staff at the Stanley Arms that he liked youngsters, especially those of the age of 12 to 13ish, claiming, They listen to me, they understand me. Now because Heaney was classed in the local area as a loner and a bit of a weirdo anyway, his actions concerning Glenn had made Mary and Dusty particularly uncomfortable, and they gave Heaney a wide berth. They also forbade Glenn to ever engage with Heaney should he bump into him anywhere and if they did encounter him and Glenn was with them they ensured that Glenn was never out of their sight for a second when Heaney was around. To the Millers, there was something that off about Heaney that following news of the discovery of the bodies of Paul and Robbie getting out around the local community Mary had immediately shared her fears with Dusty. She later said I told Dusty straight away that Steve's done it I don't know why I thought that, but I did. He always used to say, I love little boys, which seems so horrible now. On fair play, if you believed that someone was wrong enough that you felt you had to forbid your child to ever bother with them, then you'd take into account your creeped out feeling, the quote about little boys and the links with fishing, and your spidey sense would be proper going I wouldn't it? It doesn't necessarily make someone a killer though, does it? Heaney had no history of violence or any criminal record and so police were inclined to think the same here that is until Heaney's movements that Saturday afternoon were again looked at and this was taken into account with the lingering something not quite right feeling that police had about Heaney and his story Heaney claimed that he'd been fishing at the Carpies from mid-morning that Saturday where he'd shortly been joined by four other youths including Paul Pospery and Derek Kerrish. He'd taken with him several cans of lager to enjoy in the July sun and had shared these with Derek and Paul as they all fished. At about 1pm Heaney had noticed two other boys who he now claimed to know were Paul Barker and Robbie G arrive at the pond in preparation to also fish there, but as there were already five separate anglers fishing there and the carpies was a relatively small fishery, he'd advised the boys to head over to a different spot a short distance away, Brookhurst Pond, which they duly did. A short time later, Heaney claimed that he'd packed away his gear and left to head home, telling Paul and Derek they could use his landing net and he would return for it later that afternoon. Before going home, Heaney he claimed he'd headed over and called into his local pub, the Meerbrook, on Eastham's Greenfields Avenue for a drink. He'd gone home after this and showered and changed his clothes before once again heading out in his white Skoda, returning to the Meerbrook pub at about 4 pm. He'd stayed here chatting with a local couple and playing dominoes, having a couple more drinks for the next hour or so, when he'd then returned to the Carpies to collect his landing net from Paul and Derek at about 5.20pm. He then headed home for tea, where he'd watched television for an hour or so whilst doing so, and apart from a further trip out at 7pm to buy a lottery ticket from nearby Dillon's newsagents, Heaney claimed he'd then returned home to watch the lottery draw, and had that evening stayed in and watched the TV detective series Columbo with his parents. So following the telephone call from the Millers, police had checked Heaney's account of his movements on the Saturday, and it did indeed seemingly check out. He was indeed confirmed to have called at the Meabrook at 2.45 that afternoon where he was a regular and was described as being nothing but his usual self and he was there again at 4pm where he was remembered discussing favoured holiday destinations with a local couple and even playing dominoes before he left there shortly after 5pm. Paul Posprey was spoken to and confirmed that Heaney had indeed got back to the Carpies to retrieve his keep net between 5.15 and 5.30pm but when asked he told police that Heaney had left the Carpies pond at about 1.30pm that Saturday and had headed off in the direction that Paul and Robbie had headed about 30 minutes previously where there was another exit from the rake onto Brookhurst Road. Derek Kerrish confirmed Paul's story when he was spoken to separately. Now, Heaney had only specified leaving the pond and going to the Merebrook pub for a drink, where he was indeed seen, but at 2.45 pm. Now, with Heaney admittedly being one of the last known people to have seen Robbie and Paul alive, police were now ready to speak to him again, but this time under caution. If likely, as the post-mortem had suggested that the boys had been killed early that Saturday afternoon then there was an unaccounted for hour and a quarter in Heaney's description of his movements. He could definitely be accounted for at 1.30pm and again at 2.45pm because witnesses who knew him could confirm the timings in both cases. So what had he been doing for an hour and a quarter? It was in which time it was believed that Heaney could quite feasibly have killed both boys so that Monday evening detectives once again arrived at the Heaney home on Sutherland Drive and knocked on the door where it was answered by Heaney's father Bill they were admitted to the house and neighbours were later to describe a flurry of activity when an ambulance arrived shortly afterwards and paramedics were also admitted to number 106 a short time later Bill Heaney was stretched out and into an ambulance followed by Stephen Heaney who was ushered into a car and taken once again to Bromborough police station. In shock at hearing that detectives were there to speak to Heaney once again concerning the murders of Robbie G and Paul Barker, Bill Heaney had collapsed. He was later that evening discharged from hospital which was quite surprising considering the news that he was to hear before 10pm that evening. Because shortly after arriving at Bromborough Police Station, Stephen Heaney had admitted the murders of Robbie G. and Paul Barker, but offered no explanation for his actions. He then directed police to where he claimed he'd disposed of the murder weapons, a copse of trees on wasteland adjacent to nearby Spittle Railway Station car park. This area was cordoned off and a search performed at first light the following morning where sure enough a four inch fishing knife, a wooden mallet and a fish and wire garrote were found exactly where Heaney said he'd discarded them. All items were immediately fast tracked to the police forensic laboratory in Chorley for examination where the knife was very swiftly confirmed to have traces of the blood of both Robbie G and Paul Barker upon the blade. Police now had the murder weapons and the self confessed killer in custody. At nine forty eight PM on Monday the thirty first of july nineteen ninety five, Stephen David Heaney was cautioned and was then charged with the murders of Robbie G and Paul Barker. The following day, hundreds of local residents attended a memorial service for the two tragic friends held at Eastham St. David's United Reformed Church. It was packed with shocked and devastated friends of the two boys and their families, struggling to accept what had happened and remembering fondly the boys and friends that they'd known. So many people wanted to pay their respects to the two that another such memorial service was held eight days later at the same church, once again packed to capacity with a community devastated by the horror inflicted upon it. Counselling was also offered to all pupils at South Wirral High School in the wake of the murders. This is the extent of horror that the community felt back then. It must almost have been an echo of the terrible feeling that the whole country but in particular Liverpool and Merseyside, must have felt just two years before due to the disgusting, depraved actions of Thompson and Venables. Now, with monsters like that, you don't even mention the first names, and I'm sure that they don't need mentioning because they're just, yeah, you just know who they are straight away, don't you? Absolutely heartbreaking. By the time Stephen Heaney appeared for arraignment on the morning of Wednesday the 2nd of August, Word had spread that someone had been charged with the boys' murders and an 80-strong crowd had formed the gauntlet on Mortimer Street to meet the police van at the entrance to Birkenhead Magistrates Court. There were ugly scenes, such was the level of public outrage, there was the screaming of abuse such as hang the bastard, people offering throw the bastard out and we'll sort him, that kind of thing. When a white prison van arrived early that morning, the crowd tried to rush it shouting abuse and threats of violence. However, anticipating resentment to be at fever pitch, Heaney had actually been brought into the court much earlier through the rear entrance and under the cover of a blanket. Inside the court, flanked by four police officers, Heaney cut a pathetic figure in the dock. Handcuffed to one of the officers and stood dressed in a white shirt, dark blue tracksuit bottoms and trainers, the slight balding figure stared down at the floor, head bowed throughout the hearing, and only barely glancing up when it came for him to give his almost inaudible reply to confirm his name and address. Reporting restrictions were not lifted, and no application for bail was made by Heaney's appointed solicitor, Christopher Thomas, during the four-minute hearing. Bernard Guilfoyle the chairman of the magistrates remanded Heaney in custody until a further committal hearing just over two weeks later. Upon the van containing Heaney leaving the hearing the crowd once again began to jeer and abuse there were further angry shouts and at least two stones were thrown at the van containing him although no arrests were made and the crowd soon dispersed. Apart from one woman Elizabeth Bamber who remained there in front of the court in solitary protest, holding the placard that had been so prominent throughout the crowd and that had been captured by the television news. It read, Bring Back Hanging. With Heaney now remanded in custody and having led police to the items he'd used to kill Paul and Robbie, once they were confirmed to be the murder weapons, the mass search at Eastern Rake was suspended and the area was reopened to the public. But it still remained strangely deserted. For several days afterwards, only a trickle of people heading into the normally packed area, most of these heading to pay respects and leave floral tributes to Paul and Robbie near to the scene. Otherwise, there may have been a couple of dog walkers, the odd runner or angler, but there were certainly no children playing, a casualty of the evil inflicted upon the area, as it always is in cases such as these. The following day August the 3rd the inquest into the deaths of Paul and Robbie opened at the coroner's court in Wallasey Town Hall where Wirral coroner Christopher Johnson recorded an official verdict of unlawful killing with cause of death being given in both cases due to asphyxia and stab wounds following testimony by Dr Alan Williams. Mr. Johnson then adjourned the inquest, but before doing so, paid tribute to the families of the murdered boys, as well as testimony to the police officers working tirelessly on such a harrowing case. He was quoted as saying, I would like to express my deepest and heartfelt sympathy to both parents and families of the loss of Robert and Paul in such evil and wicked circumstances. I think I speak for all the people of Wirral to thank every police officer who has taken part and who continues to take part in this inquiry which has involved a painstaking search of a vast area of rough land and dense undergrowth in scorching weather which has made their task extremely difficult. The progress that has been made in such a relatively short time is a testimony to the skill and dedication of every police officer concerned. The families of Paul and Robbie had agreed to hold a joint funeral service for the two boys it only seemed right as they'd been so inseparable through life after all and which was held at St David's Unity Church on Wednesday the 30th of August 1995. At 11 o'clock that morning shops in the area closed and crowds of people from the community lined the streets in respectful poignant silence tears openly flowing watching as Robbie's courtiers left from the G house in Darleydale Drive and Paul's from his home at Rayburn Avenue the two hearses eventually met on Haygarth Road where they then made a slow procession onto the church on the way there both hearses paused for a full minute by South Wirral High School where of course both of the boys should have started a new school year just the following week the altar of the church was adorned with a sea of orange yellow and cream flowers which also included a deluge of wreaths sent by many from across the local and wider area these included wreaths shaped as footballs and one in the form of a fish symbolizing the boys favorite pastimes Floral tributes came from Robbie's beloved Liverpool FC and Tranmere Rovers FC, from the Upton Angling Club that Paul held so dear, from Liverpool musician Gerry Marsden, lead singer of band Gerry and the Pacemakers, whose anthem, You'll Never Walk Alone, was played at the funeral service. There was even one from the office of the Lord Mayor of Liverpool, Michael Black, who also attended the packed service alongside one of Robbie's heroes, footballer John Aldridge. Every member of the congregation was given a printed order of service containing several images of the two friends. The separate school photographs that had come to be synonymous with Robbie and Paul adorned the front, whilst the rear contained separate pictures of both boys in happier times, including one of them together fishing, each proudly showing off what they'd caught that day. The congregation watched as the heartbroken Lenny and Catherine G, Richard and Pat Barker, accompanied by Paul's 11-year-old sister Hannah, came in with the coffins of their murdered sons, and then sat and joined hands in the front pew, watching as each coffin was placed side by side at the front of the church. Contained within Robbie's coffin were Liverpool and Tranmere's shirts signed by each of the first teams, and a signed Liverpool match ball, whilst Paul's contained his cherished Boys Brigade shirt, and his beloved World's Best Fisherman hat. Following You'll Never Walk Alone, a recording of the Phil Collins song Every Day was played, a favourite artist of both Paul and Robbie, and then Dr Peter Foster, the minister of St David's, led the tributes to the two boys. He told how Paul had been especially thrilled to be at one of the star's recent concerts, and that he was an easygoing lad who was a keen member of the church boys' brigade, which his father actually ran, and who lived for his fishing after being introduced to it by his grandfather. Robbie he said was the football enthusiast supporting Tranmere Rovers as well as being a devout Liverpool fan his idol Ian Rush's number 9 jersey even adorned on the altar as he spoke there were tales of practical jokes and good-natured mischief counterbalanced with accounts of the loving caring boy that Robbie was he ended his address by saying Robbie and Paul had many happy times together they lived their lives together and lived them to the full they are still together just imagine the emotion that must have been there then they followed readings by WPC Joanne Johnson who'd been the family's liaison officer and who read Henry Scott Holland's famous poem death is nothing at all teenager Rebecca Gentry who'd also lost a friend in a tragedy and who read a self-penned poem God will look after you my dear and the headmaster of South Wirral High School, Mr. Wynne Francis, who read the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd. As the coffins then emerged from the church to begin their separate journeys, whilst Robbie was being interred at nearby Plimstead Cemetery, Paul's family adopted for him to be privately cremated at Blaken Crematorium near Chester. Robbie's mother, Catherine G, clutched a single red rose whilst Hannah Barker clung to her teddy bear. In the weeks and months that followed, the families of Robbie and Paul set up a venture known as the Rainbow Trust as a memorial to the boys, a venture that it was hoped would provide scholarships for local youths and improved recreation facilities within the local area. Before long, more than £20,000 had been raised, including £10,000 on behalf of the Anglin Times, whose publishers and readers had been struck by the boys' tragic story. It was donations and fundraising such as this that led to several events being sponsored and founded such as the implementation of Get Kids Fit Days in School and an angling competition and trophy that was held and competed for in memoriam of Paul and Robbie. But what was first and foremost in the minds of both boys' families a memorial garden of reflection being erected at South Wirral High School. So it's a slight chink indeed but some light did come from such darkness meanwhile Stephen Heaney appeared in court several times for remand appearances over the next few months until on Friday the 8th of March 1996 he appeared at Liverpool Crown Court for the pre-trial plea hearing again cut in a pathetic figure although his reply when asked how he was pleading was almost inaudible his intended plea was heard loud and clear Not guilty. This somewhat optimistic plea, I mean, in light of him confessing to both boys' murders and leading police exactly to where the weapons used to kill Robbie and Paul were found, was noted by the court and a trial date was set for hearings to begin on Tuesday, May the seventh, nineteen ninety-six, accounting for the Maybank holiday on the sixth of May. However, when May the seventh came around, the two months awaiting trial must have worn heavily on Heaney as when he was asked that day how he pleaded at the onset of the trial on that tuesday morning through closed eyes and twitching cheek muscles he whispered guilty to both charges of murder this of course negated a protracted trial and proceedings that would have expected to have lasted weeks were instead condensed down to a 30 minute sentence in hearing but the jury were still to hear the fateful events of that saturday the previous summer Richard Enriquez QC, prosecuting, said in the days running up to the murders Heaney had engaged in attempting to befriend children near to his home in at least one case using a water testing device which was probably a sham. On another occasion he demonstrated to local youths a copper snare that he'd made before approaching two 13 year old boys to tell them about a nearby badger set in the area which he arranged with them to show them the next day. However the two boys took a 12 year old girl to the meeting with them who Heaney attempted to grab putting his hand on the girl's arm and suggesting that she take off his shirt because the weather was so hot. Freaked out by this she broke away and ran off and following this both boys declined Heaney's offer to go with him in his car. It was, Mr. Enriquez claimed, as though Heaney was building up to something. And then on Saturday, 29th of July, he met Paul Barker and Robbie G. Only Heaney himself knew exactly what happened next. He'd claimed to police that he snapped when one of the lads called him baldy. Another account he later gave was as follows One lad fell out of a tree and blamed me. He tried to hit me with something. I must have hit him back. I think it was with an old mallet. If I stabbed him, it must have been there and then. Asked if he'd then strangled Paul, Heaney replied, trying to get the wire off him. Of Robbie, Heaney said, I told him there'd been an accident. He said he was going to get someone. I grabbed and pulled his trousers down to tie them around his feet and stop him running away. He then admitted that he'd stabbed Robbie. Police dismissed both of these accounts as a pack of lies, however. The crown alleged that Heaney had seen the two boys arrive at the carpies and, with evil in mind, had directed them to lonely Brookhurst Pond, which he knew would be angler-free because of its murkiness and tangleweed, and where, a short time later, he had followed them to. Once there, he separated the boys by suggesting to Paul that he went with him to look at another pond. Once he'd done so, Mister. Enriquez suggested, "It is beyond question that he strangled Paul with a wire ligature." that several times encircled his neck and was pulled tight from behind Mr Enriquez said Paul had put up a fierce fight as Heaney grabbed him from behind and wound the wire around his neck but was then also hit several times around the head with a mallet suffering a fractured skull before being stabbed nine times with considerable force he continued having left Paul it must be that the defendant returned to the other pond and from there he took Robbie to a third pond where he killed him in his case there is plain evidence of manual strangulation and evidence that that caused his death Heaney had then stabbed Robbie 10 times in the chest Although neither boy showed any physical signs of being molested and there was no reported forensic evidence linking Heaney to the scene of either body detectives clearly believed that due to the appearance of both boys Heaney's motive for the murder was sexual Heaney was to claim to police that he only yanked down their trousers to stop them running away but he could not explain why he'd killed them or would not Meanwhile following both murders Heaney had calmly continued his normal routine at 2.45pm he drove his white Skoda to his local the Meerbrook, where he had a pint of lager he then left and returned to the pub around 4pm clothes changed where he joined in a game of dominoes with a local couple and chatted casually about favourite holiday spots he then went back to the pond to collect his fishing net before going home to watch television and to have tea At 7pm the killer left his parents semi-detached home and drove to Dylan's newsagents to buy a lottery ticket on the way dumping the murder weapons, 4 inch fishing knife, length of fishing wire and wooden mallet on wasteland near the railway station car park at Spittle. He then returned home to watch the detective series Columbo on TV with his unsuspecting parents. The following day as a police helicopter that was part of the search team looking for the missing youngsters swooped over the Heaney home Heaney remarked to his dad Bill and mum Marie that there must have been an armed robbery or a drug bust or something Later that Sunday afternoon following the bodies being found Heaney was back in the Meabrook pub where he joined in the chorus of rage against the killer at one point even remarking Let's kill the bastard Later that evening detectives had called at a house opposite Heaney's and he'd brazenly ambled across the road and offered his help which led to him being taken to Bromborough Police Station such was his account. By the following evening the charade he'd put up had crumbled and police had arrested him following scrutiny of his account of the previous date and the telephone call from the Millers. Although Heaney had a clean police record, he'd quickly become a prime suspect, and less than an hour after being arrested, Heaney had confessed to both murders. David Steer, QC, defending, said Heaney, a factory machine setter at Champion Spark Plugs, regretted his actions and felt contempt for himself, being filled with remorse and contrition. Mr. Steer added, These were, of course, dreadful deeds for which the sentences are fixed by law. We fear that anything we have to say will pale into insignificance. He added that the defendant had a hitherto unblemished character and the court heard he had a record of running a good detachment with the army cadets for several years where the children had responded well to him. Meant nothing, absolutely nothing for wicked actions such as that. Sentencing Heaney to two counts of life imprisonment, Mr Justice Ognell told him, You put a brutal end to two innocent young lives. Medical reports indicate you are fully responsible for what you did. In the light of your actions and the surrounding circumstances, there must be a profound anxiety as to the risk you would pose if ever your release from custody is considered. Heaney, stood in the dock in a charcoal grey suit and blue check shirt, left the dock without a word, shaking and stumbling as he was taken away to begin his life sentences following heaney's conviction detective superintendent harrison who led the murder hunt said as far as i'm concerned this was the most draining murder inquiry i have ever been involved in physically and emotionally none of us have been able to find out exactly what the reasons for the murders were there is no obvious motive and it would not be right for me to speculate After his conviction, the picture that emerged of Heaney was one of a weird loner, a pathological liar and proper fantasist. Which, of course, we've met several times before here on the show, haven't we? Think of the likes of Russell Bishop, Scott Singleton, Andrew Walker, all people we've met before and all people who are proper full of shit and wannabe big men. An only child, 36-year-old Heaney lived with his devoted parents in a pleasant semi-detached home in Eastham's tree-lined Sutherland Drive. He'd never married, nor had any children, or reportedly ever a girlfriend. In fact, he was considered by all who knew him to be childish in nature, uninterested in the opposite sex, and seemingly as though he'd never grown up. But to listen to Heaney, he'd been to the moon on his mountain bike and he'd come out with the wildest, tallest stories that were designed to impress people but that just actually left people with an impression of him being pathetic and craving attention. An ex-colleague of Heaney's who'd worked with him during his time working at the Stanley Arms later told the Liverpool Echo He told me he was married and had split from his wife. He said he had a son about eight or nine who was blind, all untrue. He claimed he had a pilot's licence, was a great golf player, had a black belt in karate and knew everything about fishing. All untrue. Heaney carried this charade on in the weeks before the murders where he worked in Champion Spark Plugs. One worker there said, He mentioned he'd been in mountain and sea rescues and one of the lads nicknamed him Baywatch. He said he was on first name terms with show business people but whenever he talked I was under the impression that he was lying. Among the other tales that he would recount to anybody who would listen was that he was a black belt in karate and that he was actually the son of an army colonel who was stationed in India. But people saw all through his tales for the lies that they clearly were. A pub regular who knew him claimed he was a poor liar and would have had to have been 250 years old to have done all of the things that he claimed. But Heaney's most regular fables were of his exploits within the armed forces, including having been a military police dog handler, having been in the SAS and a veteran of the first Gulf War. Now it's unestablished if Heaney ever spent any time in or even applied for the armed forces, but he was certainly involved with army cadets and these tales are more than likely an exaggeration of his time doing this. Heaney had joined the Merseyside branch of the Army Cadet Force, located in Harrowby Road in Birkenhead, in 1985 as an instructor, eventually rising to the rank of sergeant. By several accounts, he would boast about his fictional exploits as a military police officer and dog handler to the young charges that he had underneath him, laying claims to ranks he certainly never could have reached, exploits he certainly hadn't done, and even carrying for show a bayonet with him that he'd bought, but didn't need in the slightest. But the bald and weedy looking Heaney didn't impress the cadets he was instructing one bit, as they considered him, emotionally, to be younger than they were. A former cadet, Steve Brown, said of Heaney, We all thought he was a baby. It was almost as if he was younger than us. We called him Heaney the weenie. So rather than try and earn respect through strong leadership and good tutelage, what does the wannabe big man do? Tries to bully the younger recruits to make himself look tough, that's what. Countless tales emerged of how Heaney would make cadets' lives a misery, enjoying wielding the power that he had over them, and erupting in temper when cadets would not do as he asked. A former instructor, John Cowley, said of Heaney, The ACF gave Heaney the chance to live out his fantasies, He could play at being a soldier and achieve a position of power and he loved it. He was a small man with a small life and the ACF allowed him the chance to think that he was somebody, someone important. If one of the boys didn't do as he was told, he would erupt and start swearing. It was as if he was out of control, but as an instructor you always have to retain your cool. He used to say that if they were in the real army they would have to do it, but they were only kids and it was only a hobby. But Heaney wasn't just perceived as a bully it was also noted that he seemed to be particularly inappropriate with the cadets also. John Cowley said further we all knew there was something creepy about him he seemed a bit too interested in the children and never showed any interest in women he wouldn't have girls in his unit. Stories emerged of Heaney inappropriately wrestling with or playing rough and tumble games with the cadets, of him taking his own initiative to set up a youth club for cadets held within school time, taking them away on unauthorised trips or being caught, for want of a better word, acting against strict instructor guidelines. There was a strict policy about instructors respecting the boundaries of cadets' privacy to negate any accusations of inappropriacy. Yet Heaney was more than once seen to wander into the showers whilst cadets were showering, despite being reprimanded each time for doing so. Despite these stories, there were never any raised allegations of indecency or abuse against Heaney, although in the wake of his later convictions, it was feared that he may have possibly abused several of the boys in his charge, actions which have long been buried. So unsurprisingly he wasn't very well liked amongst the other instructing staff and finally left the ACF after five years in 1990 amidst allegations of him being responsible for money going missing from the bar at the Cadet HQ. He spent a while unemployed following this before getting a job working as bar staff at the Stanley Arms pub in Eastham, where he carried on telling his tall tales coupled with behaviour that concerned staff and customers alike. Heaney lived up to the weirdo moniker he'd already earned for himself by demonstrating a fixation for knives, often claiming to be able to do tricks with one. One regular, Jill Richardson, told the Liverpool Echo, I was just in the pub one night with friends and he walked over to the table with something in his hand. He put a cloth down on the table just below his hand and suddenly started playing with a penknife, flicking it between his fingers and saying it was a trick he could do. We thought he was a bit of a loner, but I didn't like the idea, he just came up and started playing with the knife. And he was still trying to befriend children, even then. We've already heard how he was with Glenn Miller, but Jill Richardson's 12-year-old son, Ryan, was another boy who Heaney took a shine to. Ryan later said, When he worked at the pub, I thought he was brilliant. He was always talking about the things he was going to do. He wanted to teach me karate and he said he was a black belt. One day he asked me if I had any fishing equipment so I could go fishing with him. Luckily I said I didn't have any so I never went with him. Lucky indeed I would say. Heaney eventually left the Stanley Arms in what was almost deja vu following allegations of money going missing. This time £100 from the pub's darts team fund. Once again unemployed for a lengthy period, eventually in early 1995, Heaney found a job as a machine fitter working nights at the former Champion Spark Plugs manufacturing plant on the Wirral's Arrowbrook Road, which today is the site of Champion's Business Park. Heaney continued working here until his arrest for murder a few months later. It was also reported that following his conviction, police were preparing to question him about a sex attack that had occurred in the Lancashire resort of Lytham St Anne's six years before, on the 15th of July 1990. This again involved two boys who were fishing at a spot known as Cartmill's Pit, where that afternoon they were attacked, were sexually assaulted and were left for dead by a pockmarked man in his late 20s to early 30s. Both boys were strangled to the point of unconsciousness and one was even thrown into the pond before the man ran off. Police investigated this attack as attempted murder and it was reconstructed on the September 1990 edition of guess what? Yep, good old Crime Watch UK. A link to the episode is in the show notes this week also so you can see the reconstruction and the case that I'm talking about. Now I could find no record of how any interview with Stephen Heaney went as a result of this though, through researching for the episode, nor any record as to whether the crime still remains unsolved. However, there's no record of Heaney ever being charged with any other offences apart from the murders of Robbie G and Paul Barker, and he remains in a Category A prison to this day. Tragic tale this one indeed, isn't it? I hope that you can see, and I'm pretty sure that you guys can, exactly why I selected Stephen David Heaney to be the first subject of a Monsters of Merseyside double bill. Because I don't believe there's another word suitable for such a creature apart from monster, at least a broadcastable one anyway. This crime is just a despicable one isn't it? What do you guys think? Did Heaney he just snap in the July heat one day, or was he building up to attack someone, anyone, and he just took the opportunity that Saturday afternoon? He's never given any reasoning for his crimes, aside from some half-hearted, pathetic story about retaliating when one of the boys tried to strike him, or because they called him names. Not that there can be any valid reason for the murders, apart from an act of pure evil of course, And whilst researching the case, it struck me as though Heaney wanted to portray to police an image of a man who was struggling to come to terms with understanding the reasons for his actions as much himself as they were. I mean, he mentioned, like, if I stabbed him, then it must have been then, didn't it? You know, as if, like, come on, as if you didn't know that you've done that. He'd never reportedly come to police attention before and had no criminal record, so did he just snap? Yet I think this unlikely. He must have been examined by medical professionals during his remand period and was never deemed as suffering from any form of psychiatric condition before sentencing, so there's nothing to suggest he was acting in the grip of diminished responsibility. Indeed, what's known about the crime suggests a planned, yet opportunistic killing. I know that sounds a contradiction, but I believe he and he was always building up and planning to attack someone, a youngster or youngsters, and he took the opportunity to do just that when paul and robbie arrived to fish seizing this opportunity he managed to hoodwink the two boys who he may or may not have known or ever seen before into heading to a lonely pool a distance away that he knew would be deserted he left it an amount of time as to make it not obvious to the other anglers that he was following the boys and then headed there after them he then managed to separate paul and robbie before launching his separate murderous attacks. He had with him items to bludgeon, stab and in the case of Paul Barker garrote and following the murders attempted to ensure that he was remembered as being in the pub Within between his trips there showering and changing his clothes. He also dumped the murder weapons later far outside the search area. Now that's not diminished responsibility is it? His reported behaviour with children in the weeks leading up to the murders also suggests that this wasn't someone who just flipped out one hot afternoon. It seems almost as though he was building and building up to an abduction, clearly having children as a target. Not particularly small preschool children, but those of a young adolescence, pre- or early teenage boys. And certainly having an interest in them that I think was inappropriate. I mean, look at his reported behaviour with Glenn or the youngsters that he tried to entice off fishing with him or to see badger sets. Look at his reported inappropriate behaviour when he was a cadet leader wandering in the showers and inappropriate wrestling. And look at the evidence of both Paul and Robbie having the trousers pulled down. That certainly isn't to prevent either running away because why else were they 500 yards apart? No, I believe these were murders with a definite sexual motive to them, not the bullshit excuse that they were out of rage because one of the boys had called him a name, or even in retaliation to being hit by one of them. What utter shit that is. And just because there was no sign of physical interference to either boy, the grim thought is that this doesn't mean that Heaney didn't glean sexual satisfaction from each murder, because I believe that he did. And as horrific as this sounds, it's probably the most exciting thing that he'd ever done in his sad life because it was one thing that was real. How truly awful eh? What do you guys think? The truth is, no one knows exactly why except for Stephen Heaney and he has never revealed anything further. Police believe that he will take the reasons behind his actions that day to his grave. As I said at the start of the episode the Monsters of Merseyside was originally intended to feature two different accounts or cases but I went so down the rabbit hole looking into Paul and Robbie's story I found more than enough to ensure that they got an episode of their very own. A totally worthwhile pair of names to bring to the fore I think. I know they've got a memorial garden at South Wirral High School and I know that the family and friends of both boys will never forget them of course but I hope that today after hearing the tragic tale they become two names that you never forget either. I hope you remember the two best friends who did so much together then went out fishing one day just simply fishing and never got to come home. Remember them over the monster that is Stephen David Heaney. Yeah kind of got to me a bit this episode did as i'm sure you can tell next week then on the show i shall be bringing you the case that was originally intended as the second half of the episode which i do warn you is another of the more disturbing cases to have ever been featured on the show one truly fitting of the Monica monster i'll be back with that next week then But until that time, should you wish to get in touch to discuss the case that you've heard this episode, then I can be reached through any of the show's social media links or there is the ever-present episode discussion thread that's placed up in the show's Facebook discussion group. Patreon supporters, keep a listen out for Patreon bonus episode number 23, that like Churley FM, is coming in your ears very soon, like in a couple of days. But until that and the next episode, it's wrap-up time for this week now, and wrap-up warm time also, because it is proper bastard freezing here. Anyone would swear that it was nearly Christmas. I thank you guys very much for joining me for the episode today, which I hope, though although tragic, you have found both informative and interesting i shall be back with you again very soon so until we next speak then i've been i still am and hopefully still will be paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you guys all good and safe times and i shall catch you soon take care all and goodbye for now